Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and this is the Creativity, Education, and Leadership Podcast. Today's conversation is with Jen Fry. Jen is a social justice educator. She's also a former D1 volleyball coach. In this conversation, we talk about whiteness in sports, talk about what leadership in sports looks like, how coaching is often an illusion of control, and we talk 90s music. Enjoy. Oh, and just a note, when we recorded this interview, Jen was at a diner, so you'll hear some typical diner noise uh, in the background. I don't think it takes away from the conversation, but just a heads up on that. Okay, enjoy. Jen, thank you so much for coming on. So senior year of high school, what music were you listening to? You know, that's a tough question because to me, that's when all the good music was actually being made. You had Biggie, you had Tupac, Lauryn Hill, Little Kim, Foxy Brown. I mean, that's, I was also listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? Like all during that time, I feel like was like, just when a lot of the music was, was being made. And then you didn't have like, you could buy off of iTunes. No, you, you had two options. You either, you had the cassette tape ready to record the radio, or if you're watching MTV or BET, you had the VH the VH tape ready to record the music videos. And I remember sitting in front of the TV, like waiting to sit and record my favorite music videos. And I remember some of them was, um, I think, Do For Love, Tupac. I remember just sitting there because you had to make sure the timing was right. And so you would sit there for 30, 40, 50 minutes, just waiting so you could record on that VHS. And for the for the young listeners out there, you didn't know. It wasn't like you knew, no. <laughs> okay, TLC is coming up in, in three more songs. It just it would just happen. So I was in uh, I was in college when TLC's second album came out and Creep was the big video. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I just remember my friends and I, like when that video would come up, because they're all in their pajamas dancing around and you just yes. like, you know, but you never knew when that video was coming on. You just had to wait an hour or two. Every, I mean, that, and that was really when, like, I feel like music videos were at their top because also you had my favorite VH1 pop-up video mm-hmm. and that was great because, you know, nowadays these videos have budgets. Before it was like the person doing this is the, the drummer's ex-girlfriend who he dated and his aunt and his, like, you had all these like family things and they would always be hilarious. They would be like, it would like the little like little thing would pop up and it would be like, this is the guitarist ex-boss who just came in for the day to have drinks and so decided to be in the music video. And it was just pure, right? Like they, they told stories and that's what I enjoyed about it was that everything told some type of story. And I was actually randomly enough, I'm reading this excellent article, article on Sinead O'Connor. I don't know if you've seen it, that recent no, one. No, I haven't. Talk um, to me. It talked it talked about her kind of asking the question because some people said that her ripping up um, the picture of the Pope derailed her career. And she's like, well, what if they actually put it where it's supposed to be? Because she talked about how she wasn't, she didn't want to be that huge music star. And at that point she was pregnant, I think with her child, Jake. And then like some people were telling her to get an abortion and all this stuff. And she was, I mean, she and the Dixie Chicks were so far above their time. Right, she goes yeah. on SNL. She is um, one of the top performing artists. With I can't remember what the name of that song was. I just watched it too. Um, 
like it's been 16 hours whatever what was the name of that song yeah uh it'll come to me in a second you know who wrote it right was it print yep oh gosh yep. that man nothing compares to you nothing compares to you and so um it, you know so she's so she's at the top of her career with that song and she goes on SNL and she's actually been holding on to that picture, holding on to the right time, pulls it out and like with like the, the deliberateness and intent and you see her stare directly in the camera and just pull it, it was like whoosh, and ripped it and just said, you know, about the sex abuse in the Catholic church and just, you know, and, and named it. Yep. And so after that, I mean, everything blew up, right? Everyone's going after her. She, she said, that when she was singing somewhere, she was hearing the booze and thought the booze were about the song, not about that. Like she didn't put it even into any type of, she didn't even put it in her mind until she like was like, oh, that's what they're booing about. And so she talked about how it's like, well, maybe that actually was where my career was supposed to go. And it's right. funny, she lives, I think in Ireland. And she says like, she's, so she's doing this interview virtual and she's like showing the, the um, journalists around her house. And she talks about the furniture. She's like, look at this furniture, it's nice. She's like. But it's not too comfortable because I don't want people staying around. And I was like, I appreciate that. Like, you ain't going to stay here <laughs> and hang around my house. You, you don't have to go home. But you got to get out. And there was, one, <laughs> there was one quote. Let me see if I can find it. Um, mm. That really stuck with me about this idea of crazy. Right. Um, okay. And she said, she said, crazy is a word that has some dirty cultural work. It is a flip way of referencing mentally, mental illness, yes, but it's also a slippery label that has little to do with how a person's brain works and everything to do with how she is culturally received. Calling someone crazy is the ultimate silencing technique. It robs a person of her very, um, of her very subjectivity. That's so true. It is, right? Whenever you think about Britney Spears, crazy. Like how whenever people are doing stuff outside the norm, the immediate thing to say is that they're crazy which is to negate what they're doing is just something that's not within the norm of society. And I appreciate that. And I mean, her article, I tell people to read it, it was such a good article because it really talked about her, her state of mind during that time and why she decided to do it, which now we see she was a way, way before her time with all the stuff going out, coming out now with the Catholic church. Right. I mean, when you label someone crazy, it's so destructive for so many reasons. And one of which is, I don't have to engage with your argument. So like you said, her argument was um, bringing attention to the sexual abuse that's happened all throughout the Catholic Church. But now she's labeled as crazy, so we don't even have to engage it. And it took 25 plus more years before the church came out and said, yes, this happened on a wide scale and we apologize and blah, blah, blah. So who's really crazy, right? A hundred percent. And then it negates every aspect, like you said, of what she's saying. So you don't have to talk to her about it. You don't have to investigate it, right? It's just the ramblings of a crazy person. Mm -hmm. We don't have to, we, we don't have to give any thought. We don't have to do anything about it. And I think that's so true. And I think if we look back in time of people who have talked about big explosive stuff, how they have been named to negate what they're saying yep. until it comes out as being true. Yep. And she's a perfect example of that. And you see it done with women. I, I rarely see it done with men, right? And what you see it done with women is to always negate that. It's what mm -hmm. you hear about when guys talk about the crazy ex-girlfriend, mm -hmm. right? Oh, my ex-girlfriends are, are crazy. You mm -hmm. see it um, when women are talking about maybe sexual harassment at the office. Oh, they're just crazy. 
Mm -hmm. right? They're just sensitive. Mm -hmm. And how it really is a silencing technique. Mm -hmm. Right. And tied into that is she's emotional, right? My, my mm -hmm. crazy ex is emotional. This person at the office is emotional, meaning um, <laughs> what's being centered there is you should be unemotional, mm -hmm. which is really fucking crazy. Like we should, we should exist with emotion. Emotion is, um, you, you know, all, all range of emotions are, are the central to the human experience. Well, that and how it makes this idea of logical mean objective, right? And like, so right. I'm, I'm not based in emotion. I'm just being logical and rational. It's like, but emotion is tied to everything. And it actually, I think it's more problematic if you think you can exist without emotion with talking about anything like that. Just, it just doesn't happen because emotion is tied to context. It's tied to all these things. And so if we even take a step further about and think about how white men are allowed the emotion they're allowed to have is anger mm -hmm. and how it's completely justified we look at january 6th mm -hmm. well that was just completely justified right mm -hmm. all those things and how it's always tied to this aspect of objective but reality objectiveness doesn't exist and and like i tell people when i do training sessions it's like you can't be objective about stuff that you don't even know mm -hmm. i i do you, um, ben do you have kids no i don't you know, I don't have kids either. I can't be objective about ra raising kids. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Right. I had to watch my, my friend's two daughters. At that time, they were six and nine. And my goal was to keep them alive. And right. after watching them for a week, I realized there ain't shit I can be objective about with parenting. Mm -hmm. yep. Like nothing. 100%. Nothing. And so when people try and talk about this, like, well, I have objective opinion. How, Sway? You don't, you, you have no insider knowledge, right? People would talk about, right, you know, when we're writing these trans bills and we're being objective, how can you be objective about trans lives and you have no clue of the nuance that goes in it? Mm -hmm. You, you mm -hmm. can't be. And so we always see objectiveness tied to logical, tied to rational, and it's always with white men because mm -hmm. they will never say a black female is objective. Like they, they won't mm -hmm. say it, right? They're always going to say that it's identity politics, race cards, all this, but it's never tied to objectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think, it, you know, when we look at how words are being used to silence, to, to, to be, you know, erasing, it, I think it's really important because when people are like, well, I'm just trying to be objective. I'm like, well, that doesn't exist. At yeah. least say like, if I'm gonna give you this opinion, there's going to be some bias. You know, I think of it whenever people always ask their friends for relationship advice. I'm like, well, I'm just going to talk to you because you'll give me objective opinion. Homie's going through a divorce right now. <laughs> you think they're going to give you objective relationship <laughs> probably right. not right and so and so naming that at least i think it's, it's really important to get people to to name that that you know this is my opinion with you know i'm gonna have some bias but this is what my opinion is right and, and going back to what you were saying about white men you know there's there's the um stereotype of an angry black woman and of course that's negative mm -hmm. but an angry white man that's donald trump that's that's the whole MAGA mm -hmm. revolution quote unquote mm -hmm. so so with white men it's you know that's normal and accepted and good but with anybody else um they're crazy i mean can you imagine if obama acted how trump acted oh god that or like that would just I can't even fathom it. Like, that's the funny thing. To think of him doing and saying those things, I can't even fathom it because the response would be so, I mean, people would try to shoot him down. Like, I yeah. couldn't even imagine if he tried to do one thing like like um, Trump did, just one thing. Hey, but Barack and Michelle fist bumped each other mm -hmm. on, on election night. 
and it was Fox News called it a terrorist fist bump. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's insane. It's insane. Well, speaking of insane things, um, mm-hmm. this past week in the NBA, there were four mm-hmm. separate incidents. And I actually think that's the wrong word. I'm going to say what I think the right word is in a second, where um, fans assaulted, I think that's the correct word, assaulted mm-hmm. NBA players. And mm-hmm. Um, the response was sort of, you know, this behavior is not acceptable and it's disgraceful and those fans should be banned. But no one's really talking about the fact that in all four cases, the fans were white males and the players were black males. Um, so it's like we're looking at each issue individually rather mm-hmm. than stepping back and looking at it as a whole. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's what you tend to see with racial acts within organizations is they're like, they make it separate dots. Because if they make it separate dots, they can't really connect it and say, okay, this is the widespread issue that is occurring, right? This ownership of black bodies by white males. If you don't do what we want you to do, if you don't perform how you want us to perform, then this is going to be the result. We are going to put you in your place. The fact, like Ben, somebody fucking spit, like spitting is the ultimate insult. I don't know if you follow Michael Harrod. He's a phenomenal, Mm -hmm. phenomenal black male writer. He talked about his first job at, at, he calls it boss, dress for less, but I think we kind of know what, what places. He talked about some woman spit on him because he wouldn't return something. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to name the ultimate insult is spitting on someone. And you are so mad that a pro athlete isn't winning or doing what you want, that you feel it's necessary to spit on them. You know, my, my boyfriend and I were talking and we were like, we just need another Ron Artist, is, uh, another Ron Artist. Mm-hmm. Go up into the stands. Give it a little one-two piece. Mm-hmm. I, we'll, we'll see it calm down for another 20 years. But like the fact that fans feel this ownership right. that they can pour drinks, throw things because they're the pro athlete isn't winning. Like that I think is, is the most mind boggling thing. And I think it goes to a larger scale that we've, we've seen in society since we've opened back up with COVID is people, if they don't get what they want, of throwing food, throwing drinks, all that stuff. And I'm just like, I I don't know how, like when you spin on me, I'm going into the stand. You can you can suspend me. I'm cool. But I'm that person, we're gonna be on the floor. Right. And and, and I think it it speaks to to how how reserved those athletes were to not react. Because if they reacted, guess who would have been the people at fault? Look at these animals, they're just going in there and attacking people. How dare they? They're like this expectation that professional athletes perform and don't react to those type of things is, is ridiculous. And I, and I appreciate right naming that as these white males who are doing it. And it's like kicking out is not, that's not it. Because I think even, um, I can't think of what basketball coach, he was like, well, what's that going to do? Are you going to have facial recognition? How are you going to know that they're not coming in? No, I mean, it, there needs to be more ways there need to be charges put against them. Their face needs to be plastered all over. Let me see. You start plastering people's faces on the internet, things are going to change. Mm-hmm. You put up someone's face and say, Dan Johnson threw this drink and will no longer be allowed at a, a Pacers game, a Jazz game. Things are going to change when you put people on blast like that. And right. that's what I think it needs to happen. Because that the, the actual humiliation and embarrassment aspect. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that to people, it's going to start checking, knowing that if they do something, they're going to be put, their bosses are going to see that, their spouses, their kids, everyone's going to see that. 
but there needs to be something because you know even we say with uh, Naomi Osaka this aspect of if you don't come and talk to journalists then you're going to get fined and ultimately you're going to be suspended have people not heard the questions that she's been asked people are acting like journalists are asking these just nice empathetic questions no they're asking painful painful questions i think about um I, the black tennis player i think his name was like gail um and he hadn't won he hadn't even like advanced past the first round in a few tennis few tennis um tournaments and they're asking him these questions and he just breaks down sobbing right. and i'm like that's the problem is they they want that clip they want that soundbite yep. Yep. So they're not centering their questions with empathy. And I think also the French, the French Open thought that they, they were going to get what they wanted. But she was like, I'm, a, I'm making 55 million just this year. I'm, I'm going to pull out. And now they're like, oh, we're sorry. We're going to change everything. Because they wanted to play this game of chicken and didn't realize she was like, no, I'm out of it. And, and it, it, I just saw an article that said, like, you know, Black women loving themselves like this self, this radical act of saying, no, I'm not gonna go in front of the press. No, I'm not gonna do these things. And people always coming back with the idea of, well, you signed up for it. No, they don't. They don't sign up to be berated and humiliated. They don't sign up for that. And the fact that we expect them again, if we put the dotted line back to this idea of ownership of body and how we are paying for a ticket. So we expect this and demand it. And if you don't do it, then we are in our rightfulness to spit, throw, do whatever it is to you, to put you back in line to perform for us. And it's unacceptable. And the NBA is like 70, 80% black. And it needs to be where people come up and say like, there needs to be, if this happens, not only are you gonna be thrown out and banned for life, but this is also the other things that will occur. We are number one goal is to protect our athletes. And I don't know if they're doing it that boldly right now, but after this four acts, it needs to be done bold as hell because like I said, the fact that you think you could spit on someone because they're not playing the game you want, shit. Right. I, look, hom right. homie would have been in the in the um, the upper deck of the other side because I would toss him <laughs> like a, a a fucking discus. <laughs> no, that's not happening. Uh uh. And, and I mean, you mentioned off air that you're in North Carolina. You know, when I think spitting, when I think white people spitting on black people your mind goes to greensboro or it goes to the mm -hmm. little rock nine i mean that there's a long history of racist white people spitting on black bodies um and, and this is just a continuation of that quote-unquote tradition i just don't even like it would never occur to me to spit on someone like that in my in an argument if we're gonna get in this fight i would never think to spit on someone and and for people that that is their next move for such innocent things, it makes you wonder, and if we connect again to white rage, what will you do for anything else? If you're willing to spit on an athlete because they're not playing the way you want to. I mean, like, like I said, Michael Harris, when his, we talked about, he was, he didn't return something and the woman wanted to the woman spit on him. You, you would have that boss dress for less vest and name tag. I'm clocking out. I'm about to whoop somebody's ass. Take me off the payroll for this little $8 hour job. It, it's worth it. Mm -mm. Dress, dress for less and catch these hands for more. <laughs> Listen, they're going to catch all these hands. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up Naomi Osaka because you're the first person that's made that, that link both these things happened last week. You had these four different assaults 
of white fans with black NBA players. And you had the, the story with Naomi Osaka. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, again, she's prioritizing her mental health at a time when, as you said, it's, it's like dance perform for us. Um, and I think it's telling that when the, the president or the head of Roland Garros, the, the, the French Open, gave her press conference in response to this story, she declined to take any questions. Mm-hmm. But that's that privilege, right? Mm-hmm. That's that privilege aspect is the, thing, the very thing that you are finding her for, you're now gonna do. Like that privilege in itself, look, I'm gonna tell you what, Naomi is a better human than me because I'm gonna put that on blast. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a, she, she is a, at 23, she is better than the 40-year-old Jen would ever be. And I'm putting her, I'm gonna be petty and putting her on blast. Like that in itself is the, the hypocrisy of it is just astounding. I'm like, you just gonna do it that blatant? But again, that's privilege and power. I can find you to do these things, but I don't have to do it myself, right? Again, you, can, you need to dance, you need to perform, you need to come and talk in front of these, um, in front of these journalists. And guess what? If she would went and just said, no, 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 she would still been fine. Like Richard Sermon, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm just here so I can find. Mm-hmm. I'm just here. Like she should, I'm just here so I can find. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not that. They don't want her there. They want her answering the questions. And I also thought it was funny of the one, um, the one girl who what, twisted her ankle at the, at the thing and then got out. So I don't know if, she did, if that was on purpose, if that was for real. I'm just going to say maybe that's a great show of allyship. But I mean, I think we have to re- rewrite like this most in the code of conduct, it's in the responsibilities. Okay, a human wrote that and a human can rewrite it. What we right. tend to see so many times is people are like, well, that's just, that's just in our policies. You mean the policies someone wrote? Mm-hmm. Okay, then let's rewrite it and center mental health, center empathy, center athletes, right? Like let's center those things. And that right now isn't being centered at all. It's like, exactly. if you're not gonna perform for us, then then we're gonna find you or, and we're gonna make you perform. But Naomi's right. like, well, I got 55 million last year. I'm gonna be okay. <laughs> I'm gonna be okay. Um, so I first came across your work with your great interview with Dave Zirin, Zirin on his podcast, um, Edge of Sports, which I can't recommend highly enough. And you had a great quote, which I think ties into all of this, which is whiteness is invisible. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. First off, I appreciate Dave so much. Like I fangirl, I've listened to his podcast. I have his books. That's actually how I found about I, his books. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And he has a podcast and I just so appreciate Dave. I slid his DMs in Twitter. I was like, look, you should interview me. <laughs> and he responded and I was like, and so the funny part is this, he responded back in February and I never saw it. And so I was going back through it, looking for something. I'm like, he responded to me. So like literally like two months later, I'm like, Dave, I apologize. I still think you should interview me. And it was such a great, we spent like 10 minutes talking about DMX and Prince and all that. So I had the best time ever. But yeah, I think that's the thing, right? If I were to ask you like, what does blackness look like? You'd be like music, culture, hair, all these things. And the direct opposite is whiteness. And not only are we taught not to talk about it, but we don't know how to name it. We don't know how it shows up. And because of that, it continues to operate in this kind of silo, right? That people, if we talk about, we are shunned to make sure we don't talk about. There was this really good book that I just read called Offside Racism by Colin King. And he talks about um, 
racism in terms of English soccer. Mm. And it's a, it's a great book. I mean, it's his first chapter is called from Malcolm X's house ends and field ends. Like that's an, and, and he uses the actual words. So that's how he starts out at the gate. Like I'm not playing with y'all. And he just talks about when we, when we talk about whiteness in all the ways it operates, you know, he, he talks about um, like the, the soccer certification course and who writes it, who teaches it, who, who gets to decide if you move on, if you don't move on, who gets to decide what topics to elevate, what topics to shun. Um, he talks about, you know, at the end of each, at the end of each day, everyone goes to the bar and there's like three black people and so you have these, these three black people, maybe like 40 or 50 white people. And the black people just kind of, they're situated, figuring out how to infiltrate this. And infiltrating it means you have to joke at white, at racist jokes. Right. You have to kind of stay in this very submissive aspect. You have to know what things to talk about, what things not to talk about. So I'm doing my PhD in geography. And so I'm, I'm looking at the racial experiences of professional black volleyball players overseas. And so I look at a lot of like place and space and how it affects people. And we don't think enough about how, how space affects us and how space is situated with whiteness, how you dress, right? What you talk about, the inflection of your tone. I think about, you know, when I'm with black people, how we get loud and we're yelling across the table and we're joking and all that. That's not accepted in a white culture. Right, that's not accepted. I, I think about how I'm with my friends and if you look at us from a distance, you might think that we're like arguing, but we're just talking and yelling loudly, right? And so the it, it, whiteness is so invisible that when you try and name it, people are like, well, that's just the way it is. That's the culture. And I'm always like, it comes from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Everything comes from somewhere. And we don't, we don't research that. We don't pay attention to that enough that everything comes from somewhere. And so with whiteness, you know, it's when we talk about how you speak and how um, English, like if we think about like English from England is like elevated is like the highest way to speak. The Queen's English, right? That verbiage is like the highest level and looked at the most positive. And you look at African-American vernacular and how that's the lowest. You look at Creole, you look at slang, how that, and, and how it's all on the spectrum of what's at the top and what's at the bottom. And how people who speak AAVE are, they have to just learn how to speak proper English. This idea of proper English. And like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. And so naming these things that people are like, well, that's just proper, the way it is, the way to dress, the way to whatever it is. And so I don't think we name that enough because it's directly tied to then who we hire, right? It's tied to who we hire because I want people who are going to represent me the right way. And that's what we always say. Well, we need someone that's a really good fit that's gonna represent the, the school, the institution, the place, right? Because I, I think if we talk more about that, we can see that the, the people that we're hiring are gonna be most like us versus a cultural addition who are gonna be very different and probably cause conflict. Because if you hire enough people as homogeneous, you're not gonna have a lot of conflict. If you hire people that are very different, you're gonna have conflict. And because a part of Eurocentric views are to not have conflict, right? I think about like my white family who are the most, there could be an elephant in the room. They're the most passive aggressive. They will not talk about it. They, we might get some sharply worded emails, right? Like after, so they're not in front of people. And then I have my black family where I shit you not. One time I literally, my aunt was like choking my uncle against the wall. 
and I and my aunt's like six one, three hundred pounds. I'm having to like pull her off my uncle, right? And I think of how conflict is handled very differently. And so then when you get someone to tie it back to being an angry black female, when I come and talk to you, Ben, that what you said is problematic, it's like, whoa, 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 why are you being so angry? I'm just joking around. And all I'm trying to do is hold you accountable. But now, because I'm trying to hold you accountable and I'm getting passionate with my words, you're now talking about that I'm the angry black female. And if you're my boss, then on my performance review, I'm too emotional. I don't know how, you know, hold in my anger. I'm just too angry. I need to fix my face. And this is all tied together with whiteness. Mm-hmm. And whiteness is that we're not talking about stuff openly. We're not talking about conflict to resolve it. We're just being passive aggressive and hiding it and hiding it and hiding it. And then what I'm doing is hiding it behind policies, which really don't make any sense. And I don't want to explain to people. So then in my, if I do try and question it, then in my performance review is Jen questions a lot of stuff. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and what, you're, what you're talking about, um, I agree with everything you, you said, is the poison, part of the poison of racism is, okay, so someone at the office um, makes a comment. And if you're black, now you've got to sort of figure out, you know, is this the moment where I say something and, you know, I'm going to fuck up my performance review and fuck up my mm-hmm. opportunity at this place. And if you're white, you know, do you just kind of laugh, you, you know, to, to go along and, and, and mm-hmm. whatever. And so it makes everybody complicit because mm-hmm. uh, if, if you didn't say something at that moment, now you've passively um, okayed it to some sense. And of course, you can't say something every fucking time because you're just going to get fired. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's this poison that 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 poisons everybody. It does, you know, and so I work with a white woman, Victoria Ferris, and she talks about how um, she was at a meeting and this was years ago. And something problematic was said. And I think that her black friend said something. And then after the meeting, Victoria goes up to her friend was like, man, that was so wrong for them to say it. And the black friend was like, well, it would be nice if you said it actually during the meeting. 100%. And so, you know, it's interesting because what I tend to see is that white people are so afraid of being fired. It's like, baby, you speak up in the meeting, you're getting a promotion, you're getting a raise. Black, black and brown people are going to get fired. And you have to understand, she also says like allyship has consequences. It has big consequences when you speak up. So if you're going to sit there and be like Black Lives Matter and all this, but not speak up in a meeting, then you're not really doing any work. I don't need you to post to Black Square to put hashtag Black Lives Matter in your Instagram. No, what I need you to do is when our boss keeps saying shitty things, I need you to stand up for it. Or if I say something, then you back me up so I'm not the only person there, right? And so I think those are the big things because people are like, oh, I'm not complicit. I stand up. Well, stand up when it means something, right? That you know you're in line for a promotion and you speaking up might mean you don't get that promotion and being okay with that. And that's the thing about it is that like, there's a a different level of expectation now, right? Like if I'm friends with white folks and they're not standing up when stuff is said, then we aren't really friends, right? Same thing. I can't sit, sit here and say, I am friends with LGBT people. And then I see problematic things and I don't say something like, I can't say that. I mean, like yesterday, somebody posted on a friend's page, um, she had posted me about gender pronouns. And these guys said some stuff. I'm like, whoop, I'm a, these fingers like that Kermit the Frog meme. Man, these fingers are, are going to keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep, because like, I need to carry some weight for them, right? It's all about right. carrying weight. So if I can carry extra right. weight for my LGBT friends, 
my trans friends who are is consistently posting transphobic stuff, if I can carry weight, then that's what I need to do, right? And I think that's what many people don't realize is that you have to be willing to carry weight, carry weight and lose something and be okay yep. with that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that that's my definition of allyship to when I talk to white friends, it's like, you know, if, if it's only white people in the room, um, allyship is, is when someone says something problematic, saying something right there in the moment. And mm-hmm. it's really easy, like you said, to put a black square up on your Instagram page, but, but that's the true definition of allyship is, is doing it when, when it's just you and other white people in the room. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the one thing I can say, like I work a lot with Victoria and let me tell you, She's the only one of the two of us who um, has been arrested. And Jen Fry is not going to keep in jail. I already, like, I'm letting her carry, carry all the getting arrested weight, all of it. No problem in allowing that to happen. Um, but I think, you know, when we talk about stuff, it's nice because, like, I don't have to sit there and be like, Victoria, you're going to say something. I mean, so we're doing this webinar, and it was after the January 6th uh, insurrection. And we're talking about it. And this woman, I guess, had never been on our webinar. I was like, we're, we're pretty blunt. And so she's like, well, I just thought this was going to be about unity. And Victoria literally, like, like sees the, the thing in the chat box and stops what she's saying. And she was like, obviously, you haven't been to our webinars. Because if you did, you would know that that's absolutely not what we're going to talk about. And if it bothers you so much, you can hit the, right, the, the red button on the right and just leave. <laughs> I was like, ah! <laughs> I was dying laughing, but like, I'm like, I can't really say that. Right. Like, and there are things where I can't say. And so when we're presenting and somebody white says something problematic, I'll kind of like Victoria, we've done enough where she'll see that I don't unmute or I'll message her and be like, Hey, can you handle this? And I'll let her, you know, I'll tell her, Hey, this is your time to jump on your soapbox, talk all about it. And, and so I think it's right. Like, is understanding that as a person that has a dominant identity, you're going to have to carry more weight and being okay with that. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I love the uh, hit the hit the red button and unify your way right out of this meeting. Uh, shifting gears for a second, um, you've been a coach, uh, coach volleyball at the college level, and one of the topics, one of the recurring topics for this podcast is coach. I coach basketball. Um, what, what leadership looks like, uh, especially in sports. So from your perspective as a coach, what is, what is good leadership uh, in the arena of sports? I think, so this kind of, I'm going to start kind of randomly. So I think it's, it's first understanding that as coaches, you really have no power. I don't think coaches fully understand that. Coaches don't have power. If, if your team literally said tomorrow, Ben, we are not going to play until you resign, guess what Ben's doing? Ben going to try and talk it out, but Ben resigning. And I saw that with, uh, I spoke with the program. And literally, these Black athletes said, here are the issues. You're not going to talk to us for two months. At this day, we'll talk to you, but you're not, you're not talking to us. And guess what the coaches had to do, right? They, they couldn't talk to them. And I don't think that coaches realize that they really, like for real, don't have power. If these athletes said, we're not playing that next game until you resign and they just don't play, you are going to resign. And so I, I think if more coaches centered like that, they are, they are completely powerless. 
And not only are they powerless, but their handbooks are powerless. I mean, when I was a head coach at Norfolk State, I, I think I was a head coach starting at 26. And my handbook was like, it was like the um, old encyclopedias you used to have in your house. There was like nine volumes. Like my handbook was so big because it would be like rule one. And then the kids would do something that wasn't fully rule one. So now I had to make rule 1.1. Then I had to make rule 1.1.2, right? Because they, like when you have these rules, you're trying to like hold on to power. And every rule is meant to maintain power and keep this hierarchy of power, this power dynamic. Because you, you know, we can't let them get loose. And whenever I tell um, coaches, I'm like, you really need to kind of think about lining up your handbook. It's like, what? And then they try and always go to the end of the spectrum. You know, like I'll explain like the dress code, you know, like why do you have this dress code? Why do you have this, this, and this? Why don't you have the athletes decide it? Well, what if they all come in bathing suits? Bruh, A, then you're not recruiting the right person you need to. And do we have to go to the end of the spectrum? Right? Like I've talked about in job interviews of like, why do people have to wear suits? And literally some person was like, well, what if they come naked? You like, are, is that where we're, our, our, our foundation is thinking that everyone's gonna come naked unless we explicitly say you have to be wearing clothes? And so I, I just come from it like, Coaching right now, I think what we're seeing is all about power and, and maintaining control and power. And so it's always interesting um, when, like, to think about this definition of leadership, because I'm always big on defining things. And I guess to me, I would say leadership is, is can you get people to follow you without power and control? Like that, that's the biggest thing is, is will, will your athletes follow you? Will they listen? Will they do it? You ask them to do without power and control. What does that look like if we take those two things away? Yeah, 100% agree. And, you know, traditional old school coaching was very much, you have to impose your will on the team. Mm -hmm. Again, back to that power dynamic. But I think real leadership and real coaching is, um, you know, recognizing, as you just said, you don't have power and the power that you do have releasing it and letting the team um, direct itself and guide itself. So to, to that end, what does leadership look like from an athlete? For, what does great leadership look like um, in a team, uh, on a team with young people um, leading? I think it's more collaborative. There's more voices. Um, I think there's also more room for mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. Because what I tend to see is um, coaches might, you know, say, OK, well, you know, you as athletes are going to define our dress code. And so maybe the, the first time going to the airport, someone's wearing something, maybe with vulgar words on their shirt. And then the coach is like, see, I tried to give him some power and look what happened. It's like, well, you also have to give room for mistakes so that you can talk about this and learn and grow you're going to try and implement a new offense. The first time it doesn't work, you're not going to be like, well, guess we can't implement it. No, you're going to keep doing it. And I think when we're talking about, like, especially coaching, like, you know, high school, middle school, college, we're not allowing them that room to make mistakes and learn from it and, and really learn how to talk through that and, and help them really think critically. Because that's a, a goal. Is like we have to teach them to think critically and ask questions. And many times... People don't want, um, coaches don't want questions to be asked because they don't want to be questioned. And so I think it's, um, 
there's like this thing it's called i think it's um like youth participatory research and what it essentially talks about is this method of um a researcher not just saying oh i'm going to research this topic but with the youth saying how can we work together to develop this research project and giving them just as much power and allowing them to do the research the interviews to, to really think on the theoretical framework. Of course, there's some help, but it's really that they are a part of it. And I wonder what that would look like if we talk about coaching now, when we started to come from that framework of having people help develop the team guidelines, having people develop what are consequences, you know, what does it look like to, to develop um, our professional attire, our road attire? Like, what do these things look like? Um, one of my former athletes, Chanel Smith is the director of creative media for the volunteer um, volunteer football at Tennessee. And before that, she was at NC State. And she talked about with like when doing social media, she would actually send the stuff that she was going to post or the articles first to the athlete for them to look over it and get the okay. And she's like, when I did that, they would share it. We'd see way more likes because they were a part of it. It just wasn't something that they were doing or being written about them, but they were a part of it. Or she had some phenomenal ideas um, of doing things with the athletes, but they also got to add in their ideas. And so I think that when we look at coaching of what does it look like that we have all of those aspects tied in and not this whole, I have power, I have control, right? You come to my office, you sit, I sit behind my desk, I'm in my power, you're in that seat. But like, what does it look like that we're really compromising and talking this through? And yes, there are things I'm gonna say, well, I'm just gonna go with this, this whatever it is, this decision, decision because of this, this, and this. And I appreciate your input. But I don't think that that's happening at all, right? I don't think, and that's what we tend to see with um, a lot of assistance leading because they're like, I'm not being used. The head coach doesn't want to hear me. The head coach doesn't ask for our input. So why am I going to stay here? And so understand that like as a head coach, you really don't have power. Those, those athletes can stage a coup in 2.2 seconds and baby, you're going to be gone. Uh, so much of coaching is just the illusion of control, I think. And, and the, more you, the more you recognize that, the better coach you can be. Uh, Jen, last question. So as a coach, how did you handle um, interpersonal conflict among team members? You know, I think that's tough because, you know, that was like 28-year-old Jen, which really didn't handle it well, right? Mm -hmm. Like 28-year-old Jen, I mean, because... You know, now at 40, um, it's just, it's different, especially because I facilitate this mm -hmm. and, and handling interpersonal conflict was kind of meant that I didn't handle it. I just hoped it went away, which in reality, that never goes away. And I'm not teaching my athletes how to actually navigate conflict. And so it's funny because uh, um, spring of 2020 feels like it was decades ago, but I was coaching like a little club team and club coach Jen when she was 23 24 had all the rules I'm going to decide what jersey where we're going to do all this stuff 20 uh Jen Fry who coached in 2020 coach what are we gonna wear I don't care y'all decide where we're we gonna eat? I don't care y'all decide like these are the only thing these are the one two things that I care about everything else I don't what time do y'all need to be here to warm up okay 7 30 we play eight okay cool like I, I realized that there's so many battles that I was fighting that were completely pointless Right, like the battle of what we're gonna do for warm up. What we're, it doesn't. I'm not playing. These old these old bones are not gonna be on that floor. I'm not playing, right? But like, I impose my will of like, well, this is what I think the warm up is gonna be. Versus saying, hey, what do y'all think about the warm up? 
because honestly, the warm up in preseason is going to be very different from the warm up for warm up for championships. The warm up in preseason is going to be 30, 45 minutes. The warm up for those old bones at the championship is going to be 15 minutes. And so I think really giving athletes the power that, you know, we sit so much with athletics with everything having to be uniform, the socks, the everything has to be uniform, the, the cheerleading, the hair does. And I think back when I played in college and, and my coaches gave me a lot of leeway and I appreciate that now. But I remember we had to wear like high white socks. I'm like, I'm not wearing those. So I used to wear all the wackiest colored socks ever. Or like in volleyball, before volleyball game, you're supposed to go warm up with your team and do hitting lines. And I hated hitting lines. So I just wouldn't do them. I just sit there and not do them. And I felt like I had valid reasons for stuff, but like they allowed me to do that. And so I, I think for me, you know, now as a coach is, is looking at like, what are the things that I'm battles I'm fighting that are completely pointless. Right. I think about, um, I did a meeting with some football coaches and, and one of the strength and conditioning coaches was on and he was like, you know, now as a head strength and conditioning coach, I used to always be like no jewelry in the weight room and always be walking around making sure. And he's like, I don't care. Especially if it's, if, I mean, if it's big hoops that can harm you. Yeah, but he's like studs and necklace. I don't care. Why am I going to waste all that energy on those small dumb things? And, I, and that's kind of how I look at it. It's like, what are the energy wasters that are policing bodies for no reason? right? Absolutely no reason. If you talk to someone and they're like, you know, I just want to know, you know, why you're doing this and they can give you a valid reason. Okay. But I think we, we, as coaches spend so much time policing bodies that it's completely pointless because here, I remember I did this session at this school years ago and I talked about professionalism in terms of, and, and like somebody having blue hair and this, this softball coach was like, well, if my athlete, if I wouldn't recruit someone with blue hair, if my athlete had blue hair, she wouldn't play until she turned it. And it's like, if homegirl's hitting 40 home runs a year, you're going to make her change her blue hair? Like that, something that arbitrary, right? If my player comes in, she got a mohawk and she getting 50 kills a game, I'm going to help her shape that bad boy. I'm going to buy that gel. We get, I'm going to blow dry that mohawk to be on point. And I think we just, as coaches, right, we spend so much time policing on stuff that's pointless. Right, like what, the, and, and that's the way I kind of look at now, like why are we doing that? Because we've been taught the more uniform, the better we're gonna play. So that means we take out any type of individual aspect and then it's gonna be better. It's like, is that actually true? Versus what's our nuts and bolts of our values and our expectations of how we play versus saying everyone has to have the same hair, the same socks, the same this, the same that. And, and asking, is that really gonna make us a championship team? I think. You know, when I was at um, Illinois and Hambly literally like, he was like, I don't care as long as you have an Illinois show on, I don't care what you wear. And we went to a championship match, right? So it's like, I see so many people who have like, they waste so much time and energy on policing to make sure everyone has the, the same stuff. That's like your energy can be put somewhere else instead of, and, and you could be also helping your athletes when you're critically thinking, what does it look like to wear certain things and, and to dress, you know, what's deemed appropriate and all those type of things. Exactly. Jen, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a treat. And I just love, you know, the, the direction of the conversation and so much wisdom in this conversation. So thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate you for having me on. Thank you, Ben. And please tell everybody where they can find you. Um, on all social media, Jen Fry Talks. Um, I do have a Snapchat and TikTok um, login, we will say just so I could watch videos. So don't assume you're going to see me doing anything on there 
absolutely not. I just go on there to get sucked into the TikTok video, watching it for like 14 hours on how to cut melons or some sh random shit that I, I should be reading for my comps. But um, Jen Fry Talks on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you type in Jen Fry Talks and anything, I'm going to come up. They'll find you. Great. Well, thank you so much and good luck on your comps. Thank you, friend. Appreciate okay. you. Okay. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. That was my conversation with Jen Fry. You can find Jen's work at Jen Fry Talks. Um, if you just do a Google search for Jen Fry Talks, her website will come up. And you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.